Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Father, you are holy. Scripture tells us that you are holy, holy, holy. And with that, because of our sin, we are not able to come before your presence except through the works and obedience of Christ that we're going to remember, not only through the message in this prayer, but also as we take communion. And we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. Father, we pray that many hearts this morning will be open to the gospel. I pray that many will come, not only in this service, but in the services to come, in in the city of Orange later today, in the the speaking of Luke, and in the Christmas on the corner. Father, for the churches in Orange, in Orange County, in the United States, and throughout the world, the hidden churches in China, and Korea, and Syria, and Iraq, may your Holy Spirit begin opening the hearts of people around the world. Let us remember that we're part of that fabric as your bride, as your church. And we thank you that you have called us, that you have chosen us, that you have redeemed us, and that even today you're sanctifying us, and that one day we'll be glorified and be made right fully in your presence. No evil, no sin, no suffering. But until that day, Father, we live in this world that is affected by sin. Our hearts still carry the residue of our desire many times in direct opposition to the new heart that you've given us. So we pray for a zealousness, a desire, an eagerness to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that we stand before a holy and almighty God. Give us a a healthy fear of who you are and, and of your judgment, but also to encourage each other with your grace that's so freely given. Lord, renew a commitment within this body of believers here at Orange Villa. Lord, that we would be committed to encouraging one another, to challenge one another, to provoke one another. Not only in love, but also to do good works, to live out our faith. To do the sanctification of a work that you're doing in our lives. To bear one another burdens. Father, there are many that are in need of healing today, whether in their health, whether it's in their emotion or mental health. Maybe it's in their financial or some relationships that need to be restored. But Father, let us come together and heal together. Give the comfort that you've given to us. Father, we pray for our missionaries this morning that we support. We pray for their health. Many are living in countries that many times may not have the greatest health care. They may not have the greatest opportunities to have physical difficulties and problems dealt with. Be with their finances. Lord, give them safety. May you give your favor to their ministries and to their work. And Lord, I pray that you would just come and join with us in a mighty way. Stir up our hearts. Strengthen us for this battle. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said once again, Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 9 as we just continue, because all we have is Christ. Amen. That should be enough. And that's the challenge. That's the question, the encouragement that we've been given to each other through this gospel, Mark. For God commands us to give up everything. 
our dreams, our aspirations, our hope, our even our life, God says it is mine if you follow me. In our passage last week, the main theme was that true followers of Jesus must abandon all claims of their life. Let's say it again. Jesus commands that all true followers of Christ will abandon all claims on their life. I told you last week, the message unofficially was titled, How the Words of Jesus Ruined My Life. And I pray that Jesus has ruined your life in the fact of His words, in the fact that He takes our dreams, our aspirations, and He turns our world and our thinking upside down. That's what the Bible does. That's what it's doing today. That's what it did then. You see, this means that Jesus requires, as we saw last week, a personal response to His identity. Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus demands complete devotion as you and I profess Christ. And we looked at how many people have taken Jesus and the profession of Jesus just to be a simple assent to a prayer. Yes, Jesus, I know you are the Son of God and just come into my heart. But Jesus demands much more than just a simple prayer. For he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. This includes as we saw last week, a self-renouncement of our claim to be on the throne and a denial of ourselves as the object of our admiration. And we looked at ways in which we still put ourselves up as the object of our admiration. It also includes taking up the cross and following Jesus. Jesus is painting a word picture of a man who's condemned, forced to carry his own cross to his execution. It's a call to join Jesus in his humiliation, to humble ourselves before a living God, to carry the reproach of following Christ and being a Christ follower. Jesus says, it's not that the world hates you, it's that they hate me. So many times when we're taking stands that are countercultural, that are different than the world, and we, we sense a hate, we feel a hate coming from them, it's not hate for us, but it's hate for Christ. It's hate for the very Savior. In doing so, when we do so, Jesus says He rewards the devoted followers while rejecting those who reject Him. For if we're bold and we give our lives to Him, He claims us in the end. But if we are ashamed of Him, He rejects us in the end. We ended last week with Jesus' demands with a promised preview of that wonderful day when He will be vindicated as the true Messiah. The transfiguration that we're about to read about anticipates and guarantees the parosa, the coming of Christ. It points to the complete coming reality of Christ's complete victory. The unveiling today, though, continues in our passage as Mark records the transfiguration of Jesus with another vocal testimony of God the Father. Mark now gives us a time reference from the time of Peter's confession to Christ revealing that the Messiah must suffer and that any who would follow him must be as well. As we come to this point in Mark, it is six days later and Jesus now is moving towards Jerusalem. He's leaving Galilee, his Galilean ministry, and he's setting his face and his time and his date with the crucifixion. Join with me in Mark chapter 9. Let's read together. I'll read out loud you silently. Verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice coming out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Father, what a great supernatural revealing. What a verse in many ways is such a mystery to us as it probably was to the disciples. So just I pray, give us a spiritual understanding into your word this morning. Let your spirit work. Let us respond to your work and your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. The heavenly glory presented here in verses 2 through 8 in chapter 9 is in direct contrast to the humiliation that we find in chapter 8, verse 31 of several weeks ago, where Jesus revealed that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Remember that verse? And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Theologian Walter Wessel writes that the transfiguration is a revelation of the glory of the Son of God. It's a glory now hidden to be manifested completely and openly at the end of the age when the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father to render judgment on the world. So it's, it's a picture of what's to come. This passage, I believe, serves as a confidence builder, an encouragement and a vindication to every believer that professes Jesus as Lord and abandons everything to follow Him. For following Jesus is worth the cost. And that's what I want to share again this morning, is Jesus is worth the cost. And we get a picture of that this morning. I'm indebted to theologian R.T. France for the points I'm about to give you that, that follow our framework this morning. As he notes in this passage, it makes three points. The first point as we look at this is that the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrates that he is more than just a mere teacher. Remember, Jesus was asking people, who do people say that I am? And several weeks ago, we looked at what people today say Jesus is, and many will say that he's a rabbi, he's a teacher. Peter himself says, rabbi, teacher. Jesus is more than just a teacher, and this visible alteration of Jesus is going to demonstrate that he's much, much more than that. Again, looking for solitude, looking for prayer and encouragement, Jesus finally is able to get away with his disciples. This started way back when. Jesus is finally finding some time to get away. And Mark notes that Jesus brings three of them, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountaintop with him. The gospel has pointed out that the three, these three disciples get singled out for special revelation many times. In Mark 5, we see that it was those three that traveled with Jesus to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. Out of the twelve, Jesus had a special relationship with these three men. We don't know exactly what is special about them, but we will see that these men become great pillars of the faith and of the church later on. I say this, this was even meant to give encouragement to all the disciples because of the way Mark describes this event. Look at the verbs used in this passage. Jesus took them. He led them. He appeared before them. And all these things, it's about them. He's bringing them. He's including them in. He's wanting them to see something special, to be a witness. He's wanting to encourage them to lift them up. In verse 7, we'll see that God actually, the God the Father actually will speak to them. 
Jesus is finally revealing himself, his ministry, and his purpose in coming. It involves suffering and rejection and betrayal. As you may recall from this series, the desire for the Messiah's appearance has reached a fever pitch. Even after the feeding of 5,000, they wanted to take Jesus and make him king. That long-expected messianic age is coming, as we just sung about just a little bit ago. It has finally arrived, and the Messiah is now telling them, not only will he be rejected and die, but any who follow the Messiah must also suffer and die. These are men that are in need of encouragement. These are men that are in need of some confidence builder. Because now, once again, Jesus is ruining everything that they had. Their worldview is being tipped upside down. With that kind of news, would not you and I all need some type of encouragement? It's someone to come to say everything that you hoped and desired for is now not true or will be lost. In asking who people thought he was, some commented that Jesus was a prophet, a healer, a teacher. But Jesus is so much more than that. He is the Christ. The supernatural revealing on this mountain is demonstrated as Jesus has changed right before their eyes. Mark writes that Jesus was transfigured before them. That's kind of an interesting word. You and I don't use it very often. The Greek word is used for here for transfigured is a word that we get our word metamorphosis, meaning to change into another form, from one form into another. John MacArthur writes that in some inexplicable way in which we are not giving full details, Jesus manifested some of his divine glory that is his, that belongs to him. In Luke chapter 9, 29, the good doctor writes that Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. For you and I, we might think back to Moses, who when he was, went to the mountain, he took 70 men with him, but then took three men up with him. And then Moses himself went alone. And we see that when he was given the tablets, he met with God. And remember, it said that his face was changed to pure white. From that day on, for 40 years, Moses had to walk around with a veil because the people could not look on his face. He would get up and talk to him. He had to put the veil on. When he walked among them, he had to put the veil on. It was only when he was with God he'd take it off. It changed him. There was something different. In the same way, we're seeing something that is so magnificent that even the Gospels are not able to share exactly all that happened other than it gets a preview of who Jesus truly is. The divining light or the divine glory emanated from Jesus made even his clothing radiate brilliant white light. Light is often associated in Scripture with God's visible presence. In Scripture, many times, God appeared in lights and in clouds and in fire with intense glory. Mark makes a point to describe the clothes as being so white that no earthly cleaner could accomplish this. There was something miraculous coming on as the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrates that He's more than just a mere teacher. It's a sign of encouragement that this is a man is much more. This man who is demanding so much of you is much more than just a man. Number two, 
not only is his visible alteration demonstrating something, but also his association with Elijah and Moses. Again, something mysterious. This is just a mysterious passage. It demonstrates his Masonic role. There's something special going on with Moses and Elijah. Some believe that the Old Testament heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah, are chosen here to represent the law and the prophets. Moses for the law and Elijah for the prophets. Or that they were chosen due to the fact that their mysterious appearance echoes their mysterious exit from the world. In Deuteronomy, we find that Moses goes to die, and it says that no one knows where he is buried, for he went up to die, and it says that God himself buried him. And then we find in Scripture that Micah and Satan are debating or fighting, disputing over the body of Moses. His disappearance is just a mystery. We do not know where he is. We don't know where his tomb is. In 2 Kings, we all know Elijah, where he was translated up to heaven in a whirlwind of, uh, into heaven with the horses and chariots of fire. Elijah was also expected during the Messianic age from Malachi 4, 5. We'll look a little more at this next week, where God promises, I will send you Elijah and the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. God had also promised in Deuteronomy that he would send another prophet like Moses in that great day. So it's no surprise that it's Moses and Elijah. They were great men. And in some way, it's not told to us once again, that these disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. They'd never seen pictures. I don't think there was pictures. There was no selfies and things of that nature. Could you imagine now? Maybe we need to make a comic book of the Bible with selfies. The Bible with selfies. You know, Moses doing the, the staff and the, and the things. All those types of things. I don't know what that has to do with him. But I just also imagine that. Sometimes I think funny things in my head. Though they're not as funny once I say them. I, do you guys have that problem too? That's what my wife and my family always tells me. But Moses and Elijah showing here is not unusual. They were expected in that fever pitch. People were expecting. So it would not be surprising, but yet they knew them. And their mysterious appearing is as mysterious as their disappearance was on their time here on earth. Now, though Mark does not tell us what they were talking about, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were in some type of discussion. Disciples are sitting there. Jesus is turning uh, bright. There's a light, and all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. Again, we can go to Luke chapter 9. And they tell us that Moses and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So in reality, what they're talking about is Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection. It's confirming what Jesus had revealed to his disciples, that he must suffer and die. So you can almost imagine the scene. Here you up on the mountaintop. The one that you believed was Messiah, the one you've been looking for for years. Here he is. He's finally here. And he's going to turn the world upside down by driving out the Romans, driving out the Greeks. He's going to restore the temple. He's going to restore the throne to David. And Israel once again will have its kingdom. Only to find that man that you have been serving with, that man that you've been traveling with, the man that you left your business and your family and friends with and taught with is now telling you that he must be rejected, that he will be betrayed by one of you, and that he will suffer and that he will die. And not only that, he looks at them and he says, you too must also suffer and die. You can imagine the confusion, the hurt, the world turned upside down. 
And Jesus takes some time and takes them up there and he introduces them to two great heroes of the faith who then begin speaking to Jesus. And what's their conversation? The very thing that Jesus told them, confirming to them Listen, we know that this is what it is. This is the predetermined plan. This is what's going to happen. You can imagine them as they're listening on to this, this cosmic conversation that they maybe were encouraged. They were thinking, what is going on? Moses and Elijah, they understand. Why aren't they trying to tell Jesus that this is not the way? But no, they're confirming what Jesus had been saying. Peter, as usual, he has foot and a mouth disease. He responds impulsively by asking if he should build some tents, earthly shelters for some heavenly beings. That's he's thinking. He's thinking, well, this must be it. Let me build some, build some tents for them. He's a loss for words due to his fear. Mark tells us why. He doesn't know really what to say. And like you and I, many times, you know, we just say something stupid. That's really what Peter's doing. He's not fully grasping the situation. He's just, he's got to say something. They're not grasping what they're witnessing. Disciples would have been aware of these passages in Scripture about the Messiah. And though they probably didn't put it all together right then of what was going on in that mountain, at the moment they would after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Peter would not always be at a loss for words, but yet we see what was going on here. They're introduced to two great heroes of the faith. His association with Elijah and Moses demonstrates his messianic role. It confirms what Jesus has been saying. It had to have been an encouraging word to them. Even though they could not fully grasp all what was going on, they couldn't fully grasp what was the message, they had to be brought back later. And then thirdly, not only does the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrate that he's more than just a mere teacher, and not only are they brought in Elijah and Moses and confirmed what Jesus has been saying, but there's a voice from heaven that declares Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Once again, the Father speaks into history, and he announces that Jesus is his Son. Early in Mark, after Jesus' baptism, the Father proclaimed, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Though Jesus will be rejected by his own people, and though he will be killed by the Romans, he is accepted and loved by the Father. And that's so important for you to understand. Jesus is not going on his own little agenda. He's not going off the rails. He's not rewriting history. No, he is a loved and he's accepted by the Father. Yes, he may be rejected. He may be betrayed, but the Father loves him. What encouragement. Especially as the Roman believers would read this later on, as disciples would live a life. This should be an encouragement and confirmation for you and I. The Bible tells us in Romans there's no condemnation to those who are called according to His purpose. For God loves and accepts His children. Amen? And He wants them to know, yes, you may suffer, but my Son is accepted. I have not rejected Him. He will not be betrayed by me. This time, the Father gives a simple statement and command. He says, this is my beloved Son. He is loved and he is accepted. His identity is real. Who he's saying is the Christ is real. He's my anointed one. You are correct, Peter. You are correct, James. You are correct, John. This is who he is. And he ends with a command. Very simple. Three words. Listen to 
him. Why is that important? Because Jesus is telling them something that they don't want to hear. He is telling them and teaching them something that is just abhorrent to them. It goes against everything. That's why Peter is just recoiling at what Jesus said. He was rebuking Jesus, saying, no, let it not be so. But Jesus is saying, no, listen to him. Listen to what he says. For it is real. It is true. This refers to obedient listening, not just hearing what Jesus says. And I think that's a problem that many of us have. We understand this. If you have children, if you have dogs, if you have a cat, you won't understand because they don't even listen to you at all. But they hear what you're saying, but they don't listen. You understand the difference, right? This is what happens in Christianity. We ourselves, oh, we'll follow Christ, we'll profess Him, and He tells us something and we don't listen. We hear but we don't listen. That was the difference, by the way, in Matthew, where Jesus says, those who hear my word and does them, he is a wise man and be accepted. Because he listens, he hears and he obeys. But he who hears my words and does not do what I say is what? He's a foolish man. He'll be rejected and lose everything. So what is the father saying? He's saying more than just hear my son. He's saying, listen and obey. There's an old hymn. Maybe you know it, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This refers to obedient listening, not just to hearing what he says. What an encouraging statement. The disciples most likely are still struggling with the tough and difficult revelation of who Jesus is and what his mission is and his purpose. What he is telling them is turning their world upside down. What he is teaching is contrary to everything that they have been taught and have been praying for, expecting and hoping for the Messiah. What a difficult time these next few weeks are going to be for them as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and they're going to see these things happen. Suffer, rejection, betrayal, and death. These are not actions that they were hoping for. This is not the things that they would describe in their Messiah. Maybe for their enemies, they would like to see them to, to suffer and be rejected, be betrayed and die. But not for their Messiah. Not for the anointed one of the Lord. On top of that, they too must follow suit and be suffering and rejected and be betrayed and face death. Yet Jesus is telling them that salvation must come. And get this, Jesus is teaching them that suffering or salvation must come through suffering. Not only from Christ, but for us. There is no turning back. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and he marches forward. I expect that this great supernatural event was also meant to strengthen and encourage Jesus as well, as he knows what awaits him. Disciples are in denial, but Jesus has none of that. And he sets his face, and we'll see later in other scriptures, that nothing would turn him from that. This destiny with the cross has been decreed from the beginning. 
Paul tells the Philippian church that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus accepted the agreement that he and the Father had made in eternity past. Jesus accepted his important role in our salvation. Paul informs the Corinthian believers that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation comes through suffering. From abandoning it all, giving it all up your dreams, your aspirations. The Father knows that you and I need encouragement for that. And He gives them a preview and a vindication of who Jesus is. The author of Hebrew writes that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despised the shame. And again to the Philippians, He writes, God has therefore highly exalted Jesus, and He's bestowed on Him the name that is above all. All names, amen? So that the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The encouragement that you and I find in this passage is the same encourage that will eventually empower the disciples to suffer and die. For they too will suffer and die. As I shared with you last week, every disciple other than John died a martyr's death, as tradition tells us. And also John himself suffered Uh, Many, many things. It is the same encouragement that will empower the Roman readers of Mark in the first century to face the persecution of the emperor of Caesar and the rest of Rome. It is the same encouragement that will empower centuries of martyrs and Christians to abandon it all to follow Christ. And it is the same encouragement that will also empower you and I today to forsake everything in order to to gain Christ. My question is, would you follow Him today? Would you listen to Him? Would you embrace the suffering and the public humiliation of the cross? Why? Because it's worth it. The disciples are moved from great confession to a great confusion, then eventually to a great conviction. Recalling this great event after the ascension of Christ and the pouring out the Spirit at the day of Pentecost, both Peter and John became great pillars of the church. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to 2 Peter. For I want to give you the words of Peter as he reflects back years later in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials of this very event. 2 Peter, near the end of your Bible, Verse 16, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with Him on that holy mountain. John chapter 1, if you want to turn there real quick, this is the verse that you know, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and full of truth. These men are now, this is their encouragement. This is helping them get through the pain and the suffering, the evil that they're experiencing as they follow Christ, as they abandon all. Turn then to Revelation, last book of the Bible. Here's John. As tradition says, that he's already been boiled in oil and he's isolated to the island of Patmos. Jesus once again comes to him in a mysterious, miraculous way in the vision of Revelation chapter 1. And here we get another picture of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Look at these words. And his hairs of his head were white, and it was white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished brass, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What we get here in Mark chapter 9 is a picture of who Jesus truly is in his divine form. This Jesus will come again in all power, glory, and vindication. But just as important, there's another encouragement for you and I. For not only will that Jesus come back, not only will he be vindicated in all his suffering, not only will we be vindicated ourselves, but Scripture tells us that just as Jesus was transformed, we too will be transformed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing to a church that is struggling. A church that is struggling to live out what God has called them to do. It says in chapter 4 verse 6 of 2 Corinthians, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Referring back to who Jesus is. The glory of God was shown in the face of Christ as he listened to the Father and he obeyed the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, one chapter back, it says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Just as Christ was transfigured on that mountain, you and I will be transfigured. That is our hope. That is our glory. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Philippians, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. 1 John 3, 2, last verse, says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What a great verse. We are God's children children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears when he comes again we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure jesus is given a chance to encourage and strengthen his disciples Suffering for Christ is worth it. Abandoning it all and grabbing hold to the pearl of great price 
The hidden treasure is worth it. Would you listen to the words of Christ? Would you today be encouraged in your suffering? Would you today choose to suffer? Would you choose to give it all? Looking forward to that hope of being transformed in the way that Christ was. For His glory will be given to us and we too will be like Him. Let's be encouraged. Abandon it all. Follow Him. For one day vindication is coming and we too will be like Him. Father, I pray that you help us to understand. Give us wisdom for this. We're not sufficient for these things. These are such mysterious verses. It probably brings up more questions than we would have answers, or at least that I would have answers today. But we hold on to what you have revealed, that Jesus is the Messiah, that yes, He must suffer, He must be rejected, and He must die. But Father, yet He must be also risen. And Lord, the promise is that He will come again. And as we choose to suffer and die with Him, as we abandon it all, Father, let our hope be, let our encouragement be the vindication of Christ and all His saints. For He was worthy to open the seal. And for those who have chosen to follow Him, He brings us into His presence. And He calls us children now. Let that truth sink deep into our hearts. We pray this in His name. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd like for you to just take a moment to pause, to consider and pray and respond. Are you encouraged this morning? Have you been struggling in abandoning it all? Are you still struggling in whether or not you should choose to abandon it all and follow Him? Are you struggling with wanting to be humiliated or desiring to be humiliated for His sake? Let this word be encouragement. Let your hope be found in Him. Would you respond to how God would call you this morning? May you be glorified in all that we do today. Father, may we respond to your call. Strengthen us for that. Encourage us this morning. Once again, in Christ's name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.